Hello, and welcome to the Dark Ages podcast. This is episode three, Alaric the Bold. Last time, if you remember, I left things on a bit of a cliffhanger, with the victorious Goths led by Fritigern marching away from their victory at the Battle of Adrianople. I'm going to spend the first part of this episode summarizing the ensuing Gothic War before moving on to introduce our new hero, the guy whose name is on this episode, Alaric the Visigoth, for those of you who click without reading. The defeat and death of Emperor Valens set off four years of chaos in the Middle Empire. After the failed siege of Adrianople, the Goths advanced on Constantinople. Exactly what they thought they were going to accomplish is not clear. The adrenaline of victory was still making decisions for them. We have to remember that most of the army would have only heard stories of the capital, and they had been that close to capturing Adrianople, so maybe it didn't seem such a wild idea. When they drew near and saw the extent of the fortifications and the size of the city, the reality was a dash of cold water. A siege was begun but ended quickly when a squad of Saracen federates charged out of the gates and attacked the Gothic camp. One, Stark Naked, according to accounts, slit a Gothic warrior's throat and drank his blood, at which point the Gothic siege dissolved in horror, which, fair enough. In Valen's absence, command in the east fell to his magister Militum, that is, commander-in-chief, a man by the name of Julius. His reaction to the defeat of Adrianople was not calculated to de-escalate the situation. He sent out orders to all the garrisons in Thrace to massacre their Gothic troops, which they did. Once that became generally known, there were riots among Gothic communities across Asia Minor, which were put down with similar brutality. Ultimately, this was just a recruiting opportunity for Fritigern, as uncommitted Goths across the region joined him. Better to hang for a wolf than a lamb, after all. The next four years are a confused jumble, with sources often absent or contradictory. Overall command of Roman troops was given to one Theodosius, a commander that had been successful against the Sarmatians earlier in his career. In January of 379, after a few months' probationary period, he was invested with imperial powers in the east. No one knew it, but the last continuous dynasty of Roman emperors was being created in that moment. It's been pointed out to me that it's hard to go back and recheck who's who while you're listening to a podcast, so I'm going to try and do a better job of flagging and pushing the names and who all of these people are as we go. So to that end, here's the emperor of Rome in the east, Theodosius I. Theodosius's first priority was to rebuild his shattered army. His initial attempts were disappointing, as the farmers, who were liable to be conscripted, were often hidden away by their landlords, who had less than zero interest in seeing their labor taken away. The first army Theodosius did manage to put into the field simply ran away at the first sight of trouble. Theodosius countered this with a massive propaganda effort to build up even minor victories and create the impression that he was making progress against the Goths. The Goths had problems of their own. Their leader, Fritigern, found that it was nearly impossible to feed his army when they were all gathered in one place, so he was obligated to split his forces up into smaller groups in order to forage. That obviously made them more vulnerable to Roman counterattack. Even when all the Goths were able to congregate, they found themselves unable to take the larger walled cities that would have allowed a more long-term strategy. So in spite of an influx of fighters from the countryside, as well as Sarmatians, Typholi, and even Huns from over the border, Fritigern found himself mostly treading water. The stalemate was broken when the Grithungi, those eastern Goths that had been so decisive at Adrianople, went their own way, around 380, 
and moved westward into Illyricum and so into the territory of the Western Emperor. The emperor in question, whose name was Gratian, was a talented commander and moved to check the invasion. The Grothungi were stopped and settled in Pannonia, whether through diplomacy or military defeat is not clear. Gratian then continued on and gave the eastern army's collective spine a much-needed stiffening. With the stalemate evident to all sides, negotiations began. The Goths were brought nominally into the empire, and agreed to serve as federati in the Roman army, but this agreement was significantly different from previous treaties in important ways. Lands between Moesia and Thrace, between the Balkan Alps and the Danube River, were granted to them, for the Goths to farm as autonomous peoples on Roman territory. They were allowed to live under their own laws in their internal affairs, but unable to legally join the imperial community, meaning they could not marry Romans. The Goths were obligated to provide federate troops to the Roman legions, though Goths could not be given high military commands. Those troops were entitled to cash payments, though how much we have no idea. The Romans acknowledged no specific leaders of the Goths, which means I am afraid I can't offer any kind of closure to the careers of Fritigern or Alotheus or Saphrax that we had talked about before. They all simply disappear from the record after the end of the Gothic War. It's been suggested that Fritigern may have stepped down or been overthrown or killed as the price of peace, but that's complete speculation. Fritigern had achieved the ancient equivalent of a hat trick. He had defeated multiple Roman armies in the field, kept his people mostly united, and managed to maintain his position at their head for six years, but we have no idea where, when, or how old he was when he died. In the interest of tying up loose ends, I'd like to bring the story of Fritigern's great rival, Athanaric, to an end as well. Fritigern had been a persistent thorn in Athanaric's side, and his scheming apparently did not end simply because of their separation. After he'd escaped the Huns, Athanaric had slipped across the Carpathians and carved out a small territory for himself and his followers. They settled in an area called the Kaukaland, which, in the best traditions of confusing Eastern European geography, is nowhere near the Caucasus Mountains, but instead is around the headwaters of the river Murish, in the north of modern Romania. We know basically nothing of Athanaric's life in exile, except that Fritigern still had contacts in the old kingdom's camp, and plots against the old judge continued to be hatched. We know this because eventually one of them succeeded. In circumstances that are infuriatingly vague, Athanaric was forced out of his tribal position and appeared unexpectedly in Constantinople in 381 seeking the emperor's protection. He was no longer Kindans and had no obligation to stay on his side of the river anymore. Theodosius met Athanaric in person at the gates, and he was treated as an honored guest of the emperor. This was before the end of the war, and Theodosius was trying to demonstrate his willingness for peace and good relations between Goth and Roman. But just two weeks later, Athanaric was dead. His death came as a surprise, and some suspected foul play, but there's no way to really know. The emperor arranged a splendid funeral for his old enemy. We don't know how old he was, exactly, but if we assume that he was in his prime in the 360s and 70s, then I think mid to late 50s would be a reasonable guess for the Gothic verse of Gedrix. Another famous Goth died at about the same time, the bishop Ulphalas, also in Constantinople, and also receiving a magnificent send-off. He was about 70 years old a revered elder of his people. And so one generation passed to make room for the next, as all must eventually do, or so my daughter tells me. There's one more character we should say goodbye to at this point. 
That would be the Tervingai. The tribal name that we've been using, as long as we've been talking about Goths, disappears after 380. The last reference to it as a name is in the name of a levied unit of Federati soldiers, and never again. The Goths were changing inside the Roman Empire and becoming a new people. They would take the name Vesi, which means shining, which they may have already been using to refer to themselves, and become the Visigoths, which is also sometimes translated as the Western Goths. So that's how I'm going to be referring to them from this point forward. Visigoths inside the Empire, Ostrogoths outside the Empire. I'll probably still just say Goths a lot, but the most famous division between them is now in effect. New leaders would clearly need to emerge into the new reality that the Visigoths found themselves in, as they settled into their new lives under the agreement that they signed in 382. The most important of these is the real subject of this episode, and certainly the most famous of the Visigoths, Alaric of the Balthi, or Alaric the Bold. Alaric was born around 365, supposedly on an island in the Danube Delta, though there's no firm evidence for either of those facts. He was said by Jordanes to be a member of the Balthi clan, the second of the great ruling houses of the Goths, and therefore related to Athanaric. The fact is, though, that there's not really any reliable information about him whatsoever before he appears in the record in 391. In any case, Alaric would have been in his early teens when the Tervingai were forced across the river and fought the wars that culminated at Adrianople. He would have come of age in a period of fear and hunger that followed the displacement by the Huns. He would also have seen firsthand the perfidy and high-handed treatment regularly meted out by the Romans. He would also have been surrounded by veterans of the wars and been well familiar with his people's capabilities and traditions. An Aryan Christian, Alaric contained a little of both worlds in him a fierce loyalty to his people, but a clear understanding of the power, wealth, and history of Rome. He's the first barbarian leader that I will have the opportunity to quote directly in this podcast, though not in this episode, and in the few lines he's given, there is a hard, laconic, badass quality to his personality. Jason Statham plays him in the movie in my head. So there you go. I say Alaric, you think Jason Statham. The Gothic settlements in which Alaric came of age were operating in a system that would not be sustainable. The agreement of 382 introduced large groups of Gothic settlers to live among the already present Roman peoples, cheek by jowl. When disputes among them arose, as they inevitably did, the Goths settled matters according to their own customs, as they had always done when the chief or judge was far away. The emperor was now their judge, and he was indeed quite far away. Theodosius was amazingly tolerant of this attitude, and more or less allowed autonomous Gothia in Thrace to get on with it, according to their accustomed ways. Local Roman officials were irritated, no end, but the army's continuing recruitment problem meant that it was not possible to renege on the deal. Their manpower had become too valuable to lose. Ultimately, the defense of the empire depended on good relations between Constantinople and her new subjects. Those relations held for just under a decade. The first we hear of Alaric is as a leader of a confederation of people, mostly Visigoths, but also Sarmatians and Huns, as well as rebellious Roman citizens. This confederation set out plundering south of the Balkan mountains into the center of Thrace. Commentators at the time, especially the poet Claudian, sneered at Alaric as a little-known menace. But the raiders were threatening enough to keep Theodosius from moving th freely through the area, so Claudian was probably a member of the world's third oldest profession, spin doctor. 
The Raid of 391 introduces another character to the story as well, I know. It's an avalanche of names, but this one will also be around for a good long time. Stilicho, who in 391 was a trusted general in the service of Theodosius, and would in time become the most powerful man in the Western Empire. He's an operator, and in the movie In My Head, he's played by James Purefoy. The dyad of Alaric versus Stilicho will define the next two decades of Roman-Gothic relations. Jason Statham versus James Purefoy. I'd watch that movie. For the moment, though, the encounter between them was anticlimactic. Stilicho, after maneuvering around Alaric for a while, defeated his army and had him surrounded when orders from the Emperor arrived telling Stilicho to let them go. The Empire could simply not afford to destroy such a huge pool of potential troops. An agreement was reached that gave Alaric a position in the Roman military hierarchy, and the Foetus of 382 was reconfirmed, but the cracks were starting to show. Alaric's position was subordinate to another Goth named Gainas, who had been serving the Romans for some time. Despite being only in his early twenties, Alaric apparently felt slighted by this position, as Gainas was a man of no lineage. Alaric was of the Baltai clan, remember, the most noble house of the Visigoths, and chafed at the overlordship of a man of lesser birth. These kind of personal rivalries play a significant role in barbarian politics all over the place. We've already seen it between Athanaric and Fritigern, and Alaric will be involved in several over the courses of his career. But for now, Alaric bit his tongue and got on with his duties like a good soldier. He learned a lot in imperial service, including some hard truths. In 394, he was leading Gothic troops in the army of Theodosius against a usurper. I know, a Roman civil war. Shocking. At the Battle of the Frigidus, Alaric's Goths were lined up in the vanguard against a Frankish force. When battle started, Theodosius's strategy was to overwhelm the Frankish opponents with wave after wave of Gothic soldiers, with little to no concern about the heavy casualties they endured. 10,000 Goths are reported to have been killed, and even allowing for the usual exaggeration, it's obvious that the battle was devastating to the Gothic forces. Worse, Theodosius took little notice of Alaric or his men's contribution after the battle was won, and there were rumors that the emperor and the native Roman generals were privately pleased they had both defeated the usurper and thinned the ranks of the Goths. Alaric was left with nothing to show for his service to the empire except bitter disappointment and the knowledge that he and his people would never be anything but second-class citizens and cannon fodder. Though cannon hadn't been invented yet, of course. But then the situation shifted at the beginning of 395, when Emperor Theodosius suddenly died. Theodosius was the last emperor to rule a united empire single-handedly, though only briefly. The East-West Division was more manageable, especially now since both of Theodosius's heirs were under age at the time of his death. It was decided that the East would go to his elder son, Arcadius, 17 years old at the time, and the West to the younger, Honorius, who was 10. Neither of them were the men for the jobs, and never would be. Real power fell into the hands of the men that surrounded them, ambitious soldiers and administrators, and that would be the situation for the remainder of the life of the Western Empire. In the West, Honorius came under the influence of Stilicho, who was now master of soldiers, while Arcadius was initially under the sway of the master of offices, by name Rufinus, who will not be around very long, as we will soon see. Alaric took advantage of the confusion surrounding the regime change, 
The original Foetus had been broken by the death of Theodosius, not that anyone seemed particularly interested in it anymore. Further bolstering the impression that the destruction of the Goths had been planned, the army had failed to arrange enough supplies for Alaric's army to return home. On the way back from the Battle of the Frigidus, Alaric led his people in raiding the towns of Illyria along his route. This was no doubt personally satisfying, and it ensured that his men wouldn't starve, but it put Alaric even more at odds with the imperial courts. Those imperial courts, though, were distracted, as the Huns had begun large, organized raids into imperial territory. Gainas was in command of the response to these, which meant Alaric would not take part in them. Instead, after raiding through Pannonia and parts of Dalmatia, Alaric returned to Moesia and convinced the Goths still at home to join him in a general rebellion. The Goths' motivations for this rebellion can be obscure, if, like I did the first time through these years, you take each group of barbarians on their own and out of context. But it makes perfect sense when you consider that in the 390s, the attacks and ravaging of Moesia by the Huns began and would only get worse over time. Most of the Goths' fighting men were away, fighting in Theodosius' civil wars in the west, so the Hunnic raids fell on their territory hardest. Alaric and his men, as they marched toward Constantinople in 395, were trying to force the emperor to the negotiating table. They wanted new lands, safe lands, further south in the valleys of Macedonia, or anywhere really that they could be protected. Fear of the Huns remained the strongest force driving the Visigoths. As they approached the capital, Rufinus, remember he's the master of officers and the man behind the throne in the east, announced that he was willing to talk, and he went alone to meet with Alaric. It seems that Rufinus had a pre-existing relationship to build on, and there were rumors that his lands in Thrace had been untouched by plunderers. Rufinus granted the Visigoths land in Illyria and Macedonia, and may have granted Alaric the title of Magister Militum per Illyricum, meaning commander of all troops in that region. If you're thinking that all of that was too easy, you are correct, and you should go get yourself a cookie. Go ahead, I'll wait. It was indeed too easy. What Rufinus had done was apply the leaf blower solution. He had made his own problem into his neighbor's problem in a very irritating way. Because the lands in question were under the jurisdiction of the Western Court, they weren't his to give away and the people who actually lived there had no interest in acquiring a bunch of new neighbors whose table manners were frankly not up to scratch, and so they resisted fiercely. Alaric was able to get around those militias, and took up a position on the Thessalian plain south of Mount Olympus. He set up his traditional wagon fort, and waited for the army that he knew would be coming. When Stilicho found out about the deal Rufinus had made, I imagine that his reaction was loud and involved several improvised projectiles. He and his army marched down, gathering eastern troops along the way. Greece had not been part of the deal, and Rufinus was scrambling. The Visigoths and Romans looked at each other across the plain for several months, with no battle taking place, and then Silico was forced to withdraw back to Italy, on the orders of the Eastern Empire, who was irritated by the presence of western armies on his territory. In obeying this order, Stilicho effectively ceded Illyria and Macedonia to the Eastern Empire which he would come to regret later. Rufinus tried to protect the Greek cities that were now exposed, but with no success. Alaric forced his way past Thermopylae, yep, that from Thermopylae, and began plundering cities. Piraeus fell, and the Goths plundered the great temple at Eleusis. Athens was supposedly saved by the appearance of Athena and Achilles on the city walls, 
though the massive amount of cash the city forked out probably had more to do with the survival. With ridiculous ease, the Visigoths reached the Peloponnese and looked for all the world as if they meant to stay there. I will try to get a map up of all of this, by the way. In the spring of 397, Stilicho arrived again, in a joint operation with the eastern armies to handle both Alaric and the Huns. He landed in Greece and began a campaign of position, which he turned out to be vastly better at than Alaric was. Within a few months, he had Alaric bottled up on a high, waterless plateau. Alaric must have been cringing in anticipation of the final blow, but it never came. Instead, Stilicho made some kind of deal with the Visigothic chief, and withdrew. Why is debated to this day. When the eastern contingent that was under Stilicho's command returned to the capital, Rufinus rode out to meet them, and was assassinated by Gainus, Alaric's old commander. The new power behind the throne in the east would become a eunuch named Eutropius, who declared Stilicho a public enemy. What the agreement that Alaric and Stilicho had made was irrelevant, since Alaric broke it as soon as Stilicho had faded as to a spot on the horizon. He moved his people to Epirus, which is roughly the southern half of modern Albania and some of Greece. Arcadius, remember, Eastern Emperor, made a new foetus with the Visigoths, and made Alaric the Magister Militum of Illyria again. Now why on earth would anyone do that? It's only been six years, and Alaric has reneged on at least three agreements in that time. Goes to show the desperate straits in which the Roman state found itself at this late stage. It didn't have the capacity to expel or exterminate the Goths from the Empire, and even if it did, the army would be critically underpowered and completely unable to keep the many external threats at bay. Remember, the Goths were the most Romanized barbarians. Agreements with them was still the least worst option. That made Alaric's position much stronger than it initially appears. On a slightly childish side note, I've put up a link to an image of Eutropius, the eunuch who is now running things in Constantinople, and go take a look, or just Google him. Doesn't he look like Droopy Dog? Not to slander the extremely dead or anything, but it's just a ridiculous face. I'm sorry, that is not sober historian's talk. So, good thing I'm not a real historian. Anyway, moving on. At this point, we can start to refer to Alaric as King of the Visigoths. He was now not only the recognized leader of the Gothic peoples in the Empire, held a position in the imperial bureaucracy, and continued as the protector and arbiter of his own people. In the course of the last decade or so, the leadership of the Goths had shifted to combine both the Ricks and Kindans in the single figure of King. In the immediate aftermath of Rufinus's fall in 397, and Stilicho's expulsion from the east, Alaric seemed to be on his way to achieving all of his goals. He had been granted that position as master of soldiers, along with gold and grain subsidies for his people, and so he settled into his new base in Epirus and set to work consolidating his dual positions. He negotiated with imperial representatives about more permanent land grants, though progress was slow on that front. Alaric believed that he had made himself essential to the East as a check on the outside ambitions of Stilicho. So, time passed, relatively quietly for the next two years. But Alaric's belief about his own importance was incorrect. In 399, another palace coup, this one also involving Gainus, pushed Eutropius out of power and eventually into the grave, which no doubt made him even droopier. And the climate in Illyria became significantly chillier for Alaric. 
After the fall of Eutropius, Gainas saw an opportunity to deal with two rivals at once. Gainas was working with Grithungi groups in Thrace, who now competed with the Visigoths for land and resources. As part of his restructuring, Gainas transferred control of Illyricum back to Stilicho, just as Stilicho had wanted, but at the same time stripped Alaric of his title and repudiated the deal that Eutropius had made. New management, new rules. This made Alaric understandably angry, but it also made him Stilicho's problem. It was the leaf blower maneuver again. Alaric did not pause to admire the gamesmanship on display. He seems to have tried to muddle through in limbo for a few seasons, but soon the lack of support from the imperial state left him and his men in a difficult position. Alaric's position as king required that he provide for his people. A king whose people prospered would be successful and popular but a change in fortune could precipitate a shift in attitudes very quickly. Uneasy indeed lies the head that wears the crown, especially if there's no tradition of absolutism to fall back on. Unable to challenge the ascendant Gainus for the moment, Alaric turned west. He may have been encouraged in this move by news from the north, as a combined force of Alans and Vandals was invading the provinces of Noricum and Raetia on the northern side of the Alps, and had drawn Stilicho and his army away from the Italian heartland. Alaric pounced. His first attacks on northern Italy began in 402, or maybe late 401. Probably driven mostly by the need for provisions, the Visigoths crossed the Julian Alps, near the ancient fortress city of Aquileia, but passed it by, and attacked smaller towns as well as traffic along the roads. Alaric's ambition was not limited to stolen produce, though. He wanted a new deal and he worked his way across northern Italy, aiming to force the empire to make one. For somewhere between six and nine months, Alaric's army had its way with the settlements of northern Italy, including laying siege to the capital, Milan. But by then, Stilicho had managed to extract himself from his northern entanglement and march back into Italy, fuming. Alaric tried to maneuver to avoid the incoming master of soldiers, but the Roman army caught up to him, and they fought two battles, the first and larger at Palentia, the second at Verona. There's a map of this up on the website as well. At Palentia, we are told, Stilicho took a large number of prisoners, including Alaric's wife, and maybe more importantly, recaptured most of the treasure the Visigoths had taken. Verona was another crushing defeat, and Alaric was forced to withdraw from Italy. This certainly seems like a win for Stilicho, but as the legendary historian J.B. Burry pointed out, it actually harmed his status. Yes, he had driven the Visigoths off, but he had been unable to prevent them from entering the imperial heartland in the first place, and they had been free to pillage and burn across northern Italy for nine months before an adequate response was mustered. He was supposed to be the supreme military commander, and that meant he was supposed to be protecting the security of the empire, and especially of the emperor, and the land-owning nobility that populated the court, most of all. In the eyes of his rivals most of whom were members of that class of landowning nobility, Stilicho had failed at his most basic responsibility. Alaric's invasion prompted the transfer of the imperial residence to the more easily defended Ravenna, hidden behind swamps, and what kind of look was that? On top of that, in spite of beating the Visigoths twice, quite convincingly it seemed, Stilicho had still allowed Alaric to leave Italy, and he even offered to return prisoners in an exchange that Alaric turned down a little harsh on Alaric's wife. Stilicho did not destroy this clearly destabilizing force that had wreaked so much havoc in his home country. Why not? What was Stilicho up to? 
What he was up to was a cold war against the Eastern Emperor. Stilicho was clearly a man of towering ego and ambition, and after Theodosius died, it was obvious to Stilicho that he should be the man who shepherded the young emperors through the difficult early years of their reign. Both of them or take advantage of the youth and general weakness of the emperors to set himself up as de facto dictator of the entire empire, however you wanted to say it. He had been disappointed by the result of the coup against Eutropius, but he certainly wasn't done trying to get his way in Constantinople. And Alaric, he recognized, could be a potentially useful tool. Alaric had proven himself a wily general and a savvy politician. I deeply wish we had some account of these two's correspondence, which must have existed. If they'd met in person, that would be even better. Grim, wary Alaric, played by Jason Statham, facing off against arrogant and crafty James Purefoy. Somebody write that movie for me, would you? For Alaric's part, the issue was the same as it had always been. The Great Raid had kept them fed, but if he didn't find a place for his Visigoths within the Empire, with a stable livelihood and dignity, they would find themselves a new king without much regret. Several subordinate commanders took the opportunity to defect to the Romans at that moment, including one named Serus, who would have a key role in later events. So a deal with Stilicho would have been eminently practical from Alaric's point of view. In 402, we have only intimation and rumor, no real evidence that there was a deal made. When you look at Alaric's career, actually, and consider everything working on and against him, it's quite impressive that he avoided a violent death. Uh, spoiler. Circumstances prevented another flare-up in violence, though Stilicho continued to scheme. He had cooked up a move to bring Illyricum back into the West's orbit, and in 405 even prevailed upon the Emperor to name Alaric as Magister Militum there again, but his plans were upset first in 405 by an invasion of Goths from outside the Empire across the Danube, and then again in 407 by the total collapse of the Rhine frontier. Yep, you heard right. Total collapse probably driven by, guess who, the Huns. Hordes of Vandals, Alans, and Suevi were pouring into Gaul across the Rhine, apparently unstoppable. We'll talk more about that later on. For our purposes now, the important thing is that Stilicho was forced to make peace with the East. Peace between East and West meant that Alaric was suddenly unnecessary. The Romans broke the agreement they had made in 405 and left Alaric high and dry. In the spring of 408, he took his men and marched West again. He parked himself in the highlands of what is now Slovenia, and demanded a payment of 4,000 pounds of gold, or he would invade Italy. Again. And this time, things would turn out very differently. That's where I'm going to leave it for this week, with Alaric perched vulture-like over Italy, while the Romans try and deal with the several storms that had broken over their heads so suddenly. Thank you all for listening, and a big thank you to my first reviewers on Apple. I'll do everything I can to continue to deserve such praise. I'm going to get maps on the website and in the show notes for Alaric's campaigns in 395 and 401, so look for those, as well as an image of Eutropius, because I apparently can't let it go and am, in fact, 12 years old. Let me know if the movie casting approach helps, by the way. The avalanche of names is not going to go away, and working out a way to deal with it early would be a great help to everyone, I think. So, as always... Check out the website, darkagespod.podbean.com, and Twitter at darkagespod, though I'm still not clear on how one uses Twitter exactly when one is not looking to pick a fight. Until next time, then, everyone. Take care. <laughs>